0: Well, what defines greatness? I wonder how do you view greatness? It's Oscar night, apparently. Is it the person who gets the most awards? Is it the person who gets the most Oscars or the most Grammys or BAFTAs? Is it the person who makes the scientific breakthroughs? Who publishes the most papers? Who gets a Nobel Prize? Who gets the prestigious Uh, academic chair, or invited to the Royal Society? Or is it the political leader who can win the most general elections, who under the leadership can win the most by-elections or councils? Or is it the leader who can win the most wars or conquer and occupy the most lands? Or or the leader who can order the uh, secret agents to kill a troublesome person on foreign soil? Is greatness measured by the one who can lead a football team to premiership glory, or can score the most goals, or get the most lucrative contract, or is it the person who can just make the most money, who can purchase the most luxurious homes, cars, yachts, planes? What is it that defines greatness? Well, the Millennium Celebration, it was a long time ago, but a lot of public funds went into this Millennium Dome, if you remember, and it contained an exhibition with lots of different zones that represented different aspects of life in the UK. This was to celebrate sort of British life and achievements. And one of the most illuminating aspects in terms of sociological study, I thought, was the attempt to represent religious life, a Czech-born architect, Eva Yurinka, was the architect who was hired to create the Spirit Zone. It was a controversial choice as she openly expressed her belief that God was irrelevant to the Millennium exhibition. And um, Her initial plan was basically to construct a glass pyramid for people to kind of meditate under. And after a bit of pressure, uh, her plans were altered so that the area was then called the faith zone. Christianity held pride of place uh, and uh, amongst a display of other major world religions. And it contained some of Jesus' life and his teaching. But she refused to put a Christian cross there because in her words, to me the cross is just the symbol of suffering. And the summary of Jesus in that zone read this way. Jesus was a good man who died tragically young." Now what do you think of that? That's clearly how some people think of Jesus. In the judgment of those who wrote that exhibition, Jesus does not define greatness. In fact, he's probably an example of failed potential. But this morning, I want to show you from the Bible how Jesus defined greatness. And how he's the ultimate display of true greatness as the servant king. And it's supremely seen in his death. And that true greatness in Christ's kingdom is measured by following Christ's example. So if you want to be truly great, this is a great Sunday to come to church. Because I'm going to tell you how to be truly great. Well, I'm not. Jesus is going to tell us. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. And you'll find this on page 988 in The Church Bibles, Matthew chapter 20, page 988. I'm going to read from verses 17 to the end of the chapter. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. "'What is it you want?' he asked. She said, "'Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom.' "'You don't know what you are asking,' Jesus said to them. "'Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink?' We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. This is God's word. So keep that passage open. There's three things I want us to see from the Bible this morning. Firstly, Jesus came to die. Jerusalem was the capital city where the Jewish temple attracted crowds of pilgrims for all the different festivals, including this Passover festival that the, th- the crowds were thronging up towards at this time. And now for the fourth time in Matthew's account, Jesus tells his disciples exactly what is to happen when they get there to Jerusalem. He would be delivered over to the Jewish religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin, the the council, the ruling council, made up of chief priests and teachers of the law. There would be a trial, and he would be condemned to death. But because of the Roman army occupying the nation, uh, they would then have to hand Jesus over to the Romans to enact a death sentence. And Jesus knew what the Romans would do. They would mock him flog him, and then he would be nailed hand and foot to a wooden cross and be exposed to an excruciating, slow death. That was what crucifixion meant. And it was reserved for the worst, for the slaves, for the, the worst of criminals. It was seen by the Romans as the most degrading, humiliating, and agonizing way they could think of killing somebody as a public spectacle. And notice with me that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He pulled his disciples aside from the crowds as they they walked towards Jerusalem to remind them again what was going to happen. This is exactly what did happen. Jesus knew it would, but still he went. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Have you ever considered the enormous courage and bravery of Jesus? I don't know about you, but uh, I feel anxious standing in front of large crowds. My, my knees are trembling down here. You can't see it because that's we have a wooden pulpit, but they are. I get anxious. I get about standing in front of lots of people, and of course, there's lots of nervous thoughts that go through your head, and you wonder, well, what sort of reception are you going to get? Are, are people going to be friendly or harsh? Are they going to be accepting or hostile? But to be honest, if I knew this morning that at the end of this talk, you would start spitting on me, mocking me, and you would beat me into a bloody pulp, would I be here this morning? Would you? I'm not sure I would. Yet Jesus knows that he would receive far worse. Condemned, mocked, flogged, crucified. But still he went That is extraordinary courage. Jesus came purposefully to die. For Jesus, the most important thing about his life was this point of his death. And so he kept moving to Jerusalem, certain that these things would happen, but also certain that God would raise him back to life. On the third day, he will be raised to life, Jesus says in verse 19. So why is he so determined? And how does this define greatness? It's hard to wrap our heads around, I think, and it seems to go straight over the heads of the disciples, as we see in the next section from verses 20 onwards. Because the first response after this incredible statement that we, that we hear is one that's so crass and insensitive. Jesus has just told them that he's going to be brutally murdered. And what's the first thing we hear them saying to Jesus? Well. They're thinking about an opportunity for advancement. They had not understood what Jesus was talking about. They did not understand the greatness of of what was being done by Jesus in an upside-down way. It had clicked that Jesus... Uh, was going to be the Messiah King, promised in their scriptures. Uh, They knew of this. They knew of the golden age that would come, an everlasting kingdom that would bring blessing to the world, a transformed world. And that's about all that they seemed to be able to hear. This glorious Messiah King filled their imaginations and their thoughts, Jesus ruling over a kingdom, and there they were with Jesus. Well, that's all they were thinking about. They, They just seemed to not able to cope with this language of suffering and death they screened that bit out and they latched onto thoughts of glory and James and John enlist their mother Uh, the three of them head over to talk to Jesus I mean mums want the best for their children don't they and she shows her absolute earnestness uh, by kneeling before Jesus and respectfully asking whether she could have a little favor from him what is it you want Jesus answered Notice in the text, this, is, uh, this, is, this question is asked twice. What is it that you want? And the, and the responses are so contrasting. This, this first time, Jesus uh, gets this request from James and John's mother. Well, would you grant that one of my boys might be the sort of the deputy prime minister and the other would be the chief treasurer? At your right and your left hand, Jesus, they're good boys. The disciples at this point thought that following Jesus was a route to worldly glory. Here was an opportunity for status and power. Here was a rather obvious grab for greatness because they simply could not wrap their heads around the sort of king that Jesus would be. And what a massive cost it would be for Jesus to enable people to come into the kingdom of God. Verse 22, you, do, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? In chapter 26, we find Jesus praying in a garden the night before he will be tried and flogged and crucified. And the anguish of what is about to happen to him. Seems to overwhelm him. He says to his disciples, uh, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And they see him throwing himself down and praying to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. This cup was not just about human suffering, it's picture language used in the Old Testament of God's punishment. And his judgment, his justice poured out on sin. The cup of his wrath, his anger. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink, Jesus asked. Oh, we can, they said. I mean, they they just, they're clueless. They don't really understand what he's talking about. They don't understand that to share in Jesus' glory, they would have to share in Jesus' suffering. And that would one day be something that they understood. They, they would actually drink of this cup of Jesus, this cup of his suffering. James, the first martyr that we read of in the book of Acts, and John, exiled as a, as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. They would share in the cup of Jesus' suffering, but the positions that they asked for, well, actually the father had already assigned those. It makes me wonder who's it going to be, but there we are, I, I, we'll find out. And they're already assigned by the Father, and uh, that's not Jesus' role that he can assign it to them. But I find their response is so, it's so human, isn't it? it? It reveals something of our human nature. It's a selfish grasp for glory and status. And in verse 24, you read about what the other ten thought about it. They, they were indignant with the two brothers Now, why do you think that was? Were they upset at the insensitivity? Or were they just upset that these two had attempted to jump the queue ahead of them? Well, it seems very much like it was the latter. As Jesus pulls them all together to teach them a better response to his suffering and death. And he lays out here a clear contrast, doesn't he? In verses um, 25 of how greatness is measured in this world and how greatness will be measured in his kingdom verse 25 jesus called them together and said you know that the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them we all learn in life very early that we will be graded in importance and treated accordingly and we measure greatness by things like possessions academic achievements, wealth, power. At school, you, you, you work out where you fit in. What sort of trainers do you wear? Who's got the coolest, most expensive trainers? You know, it, it starts from there, really, doesn't it? Uh, and then which university did you manage to get to and, and so on. So many workplaces basically are just about office politics, status, power, everybody's ranked in importance and, uh, and the greatness of their work. Do you have a fancy title? Do you have a big office? How big is your company car? How many employees work for you? How big is your salary? How big is your bonus? And businesses like to um, offer us, of course, for the right price, that sense of you are just a bit more special than the rest. I mean, I love the way that they do that in the flight, uh, in the airplane industry. Uh, or you, know, you can travel first class. Don't, don't, don't go in with the plebs at the back. First class. Don't wait at the queues. Have speedy boarding. Rush past the hoi polloi for just a little bit extra. And of course, when you go on the international flight, you you have this galling experience as you're in the cattle class of walking past first class, ooh, executive, ooh, economy. You know where you're put and you can sit on these planes and you can flick through these expensive advertisements of, 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 of how you could maybe have a statement of, 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 a, of a very expensive watch or a, a very nice bag a very nice expensive leather bag that you could make a statement of who you are and we find ourselves in the power structures of society basically there's generally someone above us and someone below us, and we learn the big game of life is to how to, to grasp up to the next level. Uh, you, you suck up to those above you, and you despise the people beneath you. And, and, and it's in every walk of life. I mean, go to a hospital, you, you, you'll, you'll learn about this, you know, from the auxiliary nurses to the ward sisters, from the junior doctors all the way up to the, the senior consultants. It's always been thus. But Jesus taught his disciples something really important here. Not so with you. If you are someone who is following Jesus and wanting to be great in his kingdom, not so with you. Verse 26, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. And whoever wants to be first must be your servants slave jesus turns the whole value system upside down and it's and it's quite uncomfortable really if you want to be one of the great ones become a slave he couldn't have put it more pungently become a slave who serves others The world thinks you're one of the great ones when you can get everyone else doing things for you. The more people serving under you, the greater you are. Jesus says the more people that you are serving under, the greater you are in his kingdom. You want to be the most important in Jesus' kingdom? You must be willing to be seen as the least important in this world become the slave of all that's what true followers of jesus are like that's the servant response to him that is true greatness and so when you see a high-powered business person teaching little children in the sunday school you know you've met someone who understands true greatness when you see people staying around to make sure that the place is clean and tidy and that the practical jobs are done you know they understand true greatness. When you see people consistently serving in mundane but practical tasks for the good of others, well that's true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. When you see a spouse patiently loving and serving their partner with dementia or their child with special needs, that is true greatness. But if you come across a church where there's great contention and arguments and infighting and play posturing for positions, then you know you've met a group of people who've forgotten that they're following the servant king. He is the model. He is the measure. Verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That compact sentence deserves really a whole sermon in itself. It is a profound statement on the significance of the death of Jesus. Why is he so determined to die? Was he depressed? Is he some sort of kamikaze king? No. Jesus came to die in order to rescue many people. To be a ransom for many. That cup of God's judgment that he would drink was not for his own rebellion against God. That cup was filled with God's judgment that was deserved for our selfish actions, our wrong behavior against others and God. And Jesus willingly came to drink that cup that we deserved, to drink it and face separation from God. He courageously gave up his own life so that we could be forgiven. And made right with God. He paid that penalty ransom price. So that we might be released from being hostages to our sin. Hostages to our guilt. Hostages to all that enslaves us. And I think that's why it was so tragic. That the faith zone didn't have a cross. It is a symbol of suffering. But it's far more than that, isn't it? It is a symbol of the greatest rescue mission that this planet has ever seen. The the cross profoundly reveals to us who God is, his great love, his great humility, that when God came in his son, while deserving to be obeyed and served by everyone, he came as a humble servant to serve us. God came to serve us in his son. It is, you can't have superlatives enough to explain this incredible Truth, and when you've properly understood this you can never be the same so how are we living our lives how are you living your life is it in the shallow response that is basically just always looking to grasp for greatness or is it with the servant response that demonstrates that we understand the cross and what it means to follow the servant king. It's worth considering today, how are you serving others with your life? Will you be serving anybody today in any way? How are you serving others in this church? If you're saying you're following the servant king, Our lives will, in fact, be marked by humble service. But thirdly, what I want to see from this text is that you'll never see this without a miracle. See, while the disciples have been rather blind as the significance of Jesus as the servant king who had to suffer to bring in this kingdom, we get an account of these two blind men sitting by the the roadside. And on hearing that Jesus was coming, Uh, They see their opportunity and they start shouting, Lord, Son of David, the the title for the Messiah King, Lord, King, have mercy on us. And the crowd show their great sensitivity by telling them to shut up. But there's nothing going to hold these men back. Their shouts just get louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us here are people who understand who Jesus is and yet realize that they don't deserve anything from him. They're pleading for mercy. And in contrast to the crowds who tell them to shut up, Jesus stops and calls them to come to him. And he asks them the same question that was asked of uh, the mother of James and John and James and John themselves. What do you want me to do for you? This time a very different response. With great faith in Jesus' abilities, the men respond, Lord, we we want to see. And what a wonderful person Jesus is. Uh, Here were the kind of the lowest people on the status ladder. Jesus stops to call on them, and he looks upon them—people who could offer him nothing—and he has compassion on them. This is the wonderful thing about Jesus. We we saw it earlier in Matthew's gospel. He looked out on the great crowds, and he had compassion on them. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and he's the shepherd. He's the rescuer. He's the one who can turn their, everybody's, per, everybody's life around. And he has compassion on these two blind men who no doubt were begging on the roadside. And he touches them and instantly they are healed. Now, it really happened. But I think, too, they're a model to us of the right response to Jesus. Do you understand that you need to be served by Jesus? That you need to be saved through the cross work of Jesus? Do you see that? Sadly, hundreds of thousands of people in this city do not see it. They see no need of Jesus. Like that architect, the cross Don't understand it. Just a symbol of suffering. Insignificant. A good man who died young. Is that all you see? If that's the case, you are totally blind to the most important thing that you could ever understand. You need a great miracle for Jesus to open your eyes and like these men, to recognize who Jesus is. He, is. he is the Messiah King. He is God's King who's going to bring in this everlasting kingdom. But you need to see, too, that actually you need to be served by him. His life was needed as a ransom for you to be freed, for your sins to be forgiven. He needs to be a ransom for you. Call on him have mercy upon you if you don't see it call on him to have mercy upon you to open your eyes to understand the cross that it was for you for your sin he bled and died and my friends if we do see it how can we live with a shallow response to such a great sacrifice to such an amazing king. The saving response which comes through a miracle of God's mercy will start us on a lifelong servant response to Christ of living for King Jesus. Won't it? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, It robs us of any vain sense of our pride. It humbles us. And it says, look, you're you're, you're worthy of my whole life. You're worthy to be served with everything that I have and everything that I am. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes to see the glory of your Son. Even in the terrible suffering of the cross, to see there that moment of great sacrifice is the measure of true greatness. Father, please forgive us. We are so often vain and proud. And even as those who follow Christ, we forget this. And we Enjoy more being served than serving. And so, by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to become more like Christ, the servant king? We ask this in his precious name. Amen.